Church family, I'll invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 119. This morning, we're going to look at verses 49 through 56. This is our last sermon in Psalm 119. We say, wait, we're only on section 7, and there's 22 of them. Uh, If you weren't here when we started this series, what we've decided to do is spend the next, this summer and the next two in Psalm 119. And so we've divided it basically into three parts. And so we will, come, we will pick back up next summer uh, where we left off here in, uh, in Psalm 119, and we will do seven more sections, and then we'll do the final eight sections, Lord willing, in the summer of 2024. And you seem like, that seems like forever from now, it, it's tomorrow, I promise. So starting next Sunday, we will move back to the New Testament and start a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I'm telling you this, I like to give you uh, uh, forewarning so you can begin reading. Many of you like to uh, not only read the passages ahead of time and study, but do your own study. And some of you will come to me and ask about commentaries you can buy. We'll have the ESV scripture journals uh, starting next week in the Equip Center. For those of you that like to keep all of your notes in one place, uh, I will give you this uh, one uh, encouragement about this series Uh, For those of you that were here several years ago when I preached through the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke was about 118 sermons. It took two and a half years for me to preach through the Gospel of Luke. We are going to approach the Gospel of Mark differently. Uh, We will do all of the Gospel of Mark from August through next April. We will end in the Gospel of Mark the week after Easter. I will move much more rapidly through this gospel. Number one, Mark's gospel provides an opportunity for that. And I will explain the reasons for that in, uh, in next week's sermon as we're going to see Mark just move rapidly through several events that other gospel authors unpack in far greater detail for us. And so we're going to deal more with units than we do individual accounts as we did in the gospel of Luke. Uh, and it's still a biblically faithful and accurate way of approaching the scripture. It's just going to be a little bit different than what we did last time we considered one of the gospels together. I pray that it will be edifying uh, for us. So I encourage you now, start reading. I think it's the first 15 verses that I will be in next uh, Sunday morning. So I encourage you, start reading in the gospel of Mark in your own uh, private reading of scripture. And uh, we look forward to uh, the Lord teaching us through that gospel account together starting next week. I invite you to stand with me as we return to Psalm 119 now for the final time this summer with verses 49 through 56, the seventh section of this longest book of the Bible. The psalmist writes, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my song in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, for the gathered saints of Christ here at Nansman River Baptist Church who can sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs together to one another, and that we can spend time studying this psalm. Would your Holy Spirit enlighten our eyes, open our minds, and change our hearts? Would you help us, God? to see truth in your word to us. Let us live by it because it is bread of life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This sermon is entitled The Persecuted Life. Every one of these sermons so far in Psalm 119 have spoken in one way or another about our life as we think about how the word of God actively works within our lives. Psalm 119 is about the word. It uses numerous synonyms for the scripture, but nonetheless, that is the focus. A life dedicated to what God has said And in most of these sections of Psalm 119, primary themes arise and the psalmist in poetic form addresses how the word of God influences the way that we think about our lives from each of these individual perspectives. But there is crossover, there is overlap. As we have already seen in the previous sections of Psalm 119, the subject of persecution has already arisen before us. It was introduced in verses 22 and 23 when the psalmist first talks about those who are persecuting him even though he is believing that the Lord is blessing him. And that the the psalmist believes that God is leading him in a blessed life even though he has experienced persecution, which is very opposite of the way modern people often think about what it means to be blessed. To be blessed in our world and in our culture means to be conflict-free, but that's not the way the psalmist saw it. He saw conflict as blessing. Then we get to verse 39 where the psalmist asked the Lord for help to persevere in the face of persecution. And that entire section of the psalm was about perseverance, that, that we're persevering to the end. And part of persevering to the end requires help from the Lord because there will be moments of direct opposition in our lives. And the psalmist teaches us to cry out to God and ask for help as we seek to persevere in the face of persecution. Then last week in verse 42, we saw the psalmist ask for the right words to say to those who persecute him. This was in a section dedicated to the ready life, being being ready to answer, to give a hope that is within us, to, to tell people about the good news of Jesus, to tell people about the promises contained in God's word, even those who directly oppose the gospel and persecute believers of Jesus. But now, as we come to this seventh section of Psalm 119, we find a section entirely dedicated to persecution. It has been a secondary theme in three of the other 
previous six sections, but now it becomes the primary theme as we see the relationship between our dedication, a believer's dedication to the word of God and how it influences our lives in the face of persecution, how we are informed by it when we are being persecuted, how we are provided hope and comfort through it as we are being persecuted, and how we can use it as our guide for worshiping God, even in the face of persecution. The word of the Lord serves as a great provision in the midst of persecution. Now I'm going to use persecution. I think the psalmist does here a little bit as well in a more broad and general sense than I have in previous sermons, particularly last week's sermon. Last week's sermon was as we were looking at that, that ready life, being able to give an answer according to scripture to different groups of people. We looked at persecution directly in the lens of those who oppose the gospel. That's still in view here. But there are going to be people that bring affliction into your lives for reasons other than your Christian faith. And, and the, the belief and the faith that the psalmist has in the Lord is certainly on display in all of Psalm 119 and is on display in this section, but it is not the only reason that he faces opposition. So we're going to think about persecution in a little more general sense. But, but it's still within that framework and still within that context of what do we do when people, and we're not talking about all of life's hardships now, we're talking about people, when people in our lives are, are the ones seeking to harm us. What do we do when people in our lives are directly opposed to us, when they are not seeking our good, but are seeking our harm? And here's what I know to be true this morning. As we come to this text, for some of you, this is going to be rather raw because you right now are in the midst of opposition and persecution and affliction brought on by the actions of others in your life. And some of you when, you, when you come to these verses, maybe as we just stood and read them a moment ago, you just, you thought this is going to be a difficult sermon for you to hear, or maybe even a needed sermon, I would hope, for you to hear because you're in the midst of this. Others of you though would say, I'm not really experiencing this kind of persecution and, and I'm not really experiencing this kind of opposition right now in my life. Well, if you're not experiencing it right now, this is not permissive to just kind of tune me out and turn off and, you know, restart in 30 minutes or so when we're, when we're done. Because th there's some great encouragement here because if you're not experiencing like personal opposition and persecution from people in your lives in this moment, you likely will at some point. Or you likely have at some point in in previous situations in your life. And this would be a good opportunity for you to look back and say, how did I deal with that? Because we so often will say things, will profess things to be true when, when everything's going well, when everybody around us tends to agree with us, when everybody around us tends to support. But I wonder how much do these things fall apart? when we directly meet opposition and what the psalmist teaches us here is what to do 
to run to the word of the Lord and to use it as our guide. So let's see these three things. First, the word provides hope and comfort in the face of persecution. Look at verse 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Now, he has not introduced the idea of persecution yet, but he will. He's not introduced the idea of affliction yet, but he will. It is the primary theme of this section. So we should, knowing that, read verse 49 in light of it. And as the psalmist does in many other sections, he calls upon the Lord to remember his word. He says, remember your word to your servant. This is not saying somehow that the Lord could forget his word because the Lord can't forget his word. He is the Lord and it is his word. This is again, poetic form. It's, it's the psalmist really reminding himself and calling on the Lord, reminding himself that the Lord is always faithful, reminding himself in that which he does hope. He says in the second part of that verse, in which you have made me hope. In the midst of persecution and affliction, the psalmist first looks to the word of God and is reminded that in it he finds hope. I don't know what you as an individual are facing today in your life, but I wonder if you come this morning coming to God's word to to be edified by it, to be instructed by it, to even be corrected by it. Do, Do you find hope in the word this morning? Do you find hope in the songs that we sing based off of the word of God this morning? Do you find hope in studying the scriptures in in community this morning? Do you find hope when you turn to the pages of scripture? You should, because there is great hope that comes from the promises of God kept to his people. In the Old Testament, what was probably the most devastating time period for the people of Israel was after the fall of Jerusalem and the conquest of Babylon and the exile. And in the early days of the exile, what was likely the prophet Jeremiah wrote for us the Old Testament book of Lamentation. It is a lament over the sin of God's people and a lament over the the oppression that they experienced, that they deserved and that the Lord brought upon them in judgment, oppression nonetheless from the Babylonians. And in this time of great despair, the prophet writes for us in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will, catch this, hope in him. Even in the face of great affliction, the scriptures, the promises of God provide hope for us. Even in the midst of conquest and exile and the destruction of their homeland. The prophet says, I will hope in the Lord. So if today you you feel that burden, you feel that weight, you feel oppressed, you feel persecuted, you feel opposed, you feel afflicted because of people, hopefully not people like directly around you in this room this morning, but people around you in your life. My question is, where do you find hope? 
Where are you going for hope? Because for a Christian, what we should do is we should run to the promises of God. We should declare with the psalmist, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Christian, find hope in the promises of God this morning. But it's not only hope that we find in the promises of God. We also find comfort. Look at verse 50 and then we'll skip 51 and read 52 because 50 and 52 go together. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Here again, promise, a synonym for the word of God. Rules from of old, again, a synonym for the word of God. And what does the psalmist do? He reminds us in both of these verses that we run to them not only to have hope in dark and dire moments of our lives, but we run to them to find comfort. Because the Lord is offering to us great comfort. In his, the beginning of his letter to, his second letter to the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul writes a passage of scripture um, at, at, the, at the outset of this letter that, that uses the word comfort numerous times. I want you to, I want to read it for us. And I want you to notice the number of times he uses that term and notice the context in which he uses it. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort. So he's saying that comfort comes from God who comforts us in our what? Affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, you maybe have read 2 Corinthians a lot. I've read 2 Corinthians through numerous times. And until studying for this sermon, I had never noticed the number of times Paul used that one word in that one paragraph. And it's stark when you look and you just think numerous times that comfort comes from God, that comfort we share with one another, that we have comfort with God even in our affliction. And if we suffer, we do so so that the Lord can provide comfort for us and for others. But notice the source. The source of the comfort is the shared suffering of Christ that we together share in the suffering of Christ. And because of that, God then offers great comfort to us, which we then offer to others. Where do we find the hope of the shared suffering of Christ? We find it in the promises of God. That we know that Christ suffered for us and that we share in his suffering because the Bible tells us so. We know that God has provided this incredible provision for our salvation because the Bible tells us so. 
We know that God is the God of all comfort and that even if we suffer, he provides his unshakable comfort for us, a rest and a refuge in the face of affliction because the Bible tells us so. We didn't dream these things up. We're not imagining these things. These are things that God himself has told to us. And yet when we face suffering and affliction and persecution in life, when we have interpersonal conflict with people and we feel like people are trying to, to not seek our good, but to seek our harm, so often Christians, we, we so often are guilty of not running to the place that promises us comfort. We run to worldly solutions. We, we, we seek to fix the problem in ways that the scriptures don't guide us in. We look to the wisdom of the world and there's no comfort in the wisdom of the world. Where does our comfort come from? Paul is clear. The psalmist is clear. Our comfort comes from relying on the promises of God. The word provides not only great hope for us, but great comfort. So Can I just help you? I'll just practically help you this morning. I said there are probably some in here who who, you heard me read this. You're like, man, this is going to be raw for me because you're in the midst of this right now. Here would be my question to you. Where are you going for comfort? Where are you going for hope? Because complaining about everything and, and seeking the, you know, the world's way of, of solving all of these problems. Look, you may find like some temporary worldly relief from them, but the place where we have eternal hope and eternal comfort is by going to the promises of God. So, so in that moment, when you feel that oppression, when you feel that persecution, train yourself. And we, by the way, we train ourselves in moments where we don't feel it so that when we do, we know exactly what it is that we're supposed to do, right? We train ourselves to run to God's word, to stand on his promises and to recognize that from him, we find hope and comfort promised to us in his word. Number two, the word reveals the character and foolishness of our persecutors. The word reveals the character and foolishness of our persecutors. Look at verse 51. Now again, 50 and 52, both speaking of the comfort from the Lord and sandwiched in between that is a verse about the character of those who are persecuting the psalmist. He says, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. He calls them something here. He calls them insolent, that these are people who are out for his harm. They're utterly deriding him. This is, again, poetic form of saying, these are people who are persecuting me. These are people that are seeking my harm. And he calls them insolent. These are scoffers. And Proverbs 21, 24 defines a scoffer for us. The the author of Proverbs says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. So who are the insolent that are utterly deriding the psalmist? Who are the scoffers? They are the arrogant. They are haughty men who act according 
who act according to their arrogant pride. It, it, arrogant pride is a unique phrase, isn't it? Because arrogance is assumed in pride and pride is assumed in arrogance. It's, it's a literary device for emphasis. So who is it that is seeking? What is the character of those that are seeking the harm of the psalmist? They're prideful people. Who is it that is seeking our harm? If someone is seeking your harm today, particularly if they're seeking your harm or, or they're seeking to oppose you specifically because you have put your faith in the gospel of Jesus, these are people that think they have figured out life not according to God's way, but according to their way. See, the, the very nature of Christianity is to say, I can't do this on my own. If you're here today and you think that you can somehow make yourself right with God on your own, I got news for you, friend, you can't. You'll utterly fail. And there's, there, there's, there's great arrogant pride. And so not some kind of, I think one of the reasons we get arrogant pride there is, is to make sure we understand this isn't some kind of righteous pride, pride in what the Lord is doing. This, this is arrogant pride. This is sinful pride. This is the person that thinks they know best, that would look at God and say, I don't need your promises. I don't need your law. I don't need your gospel because I figured it out on my own. I can do it on my own. I can accomplish it on my own. And not only can I do all of these things on my own, but I'm going to directly oppose those who would say that I can't. These are the insolent that are utterly deriding the psalmists, they are scoffers who are opposing the gospel because of their arrogance and because of their pride. They're, they desire nothing more than for you and I to follow them in their pride. They desire nothing more for you and I to follow them in their way. And when you don't, when we don't, when the psalmist didn't, they derided him for it. And the psalmist says, I do not turn away from your law. The psalmist says, I'm not gonna follow them in their arrogance. I'm not gonna follow them in their pride. I'm not gonna follow them in their folly. I'm not gonna follow them in their idolatry. I'm not going to go the way of the insolent. The psalmist is following the blessed path. In Psalm, the very first Psalm, Psalm one, we're provided a path that really influences the rest of the Psalm, the rest of the Psalms, the rest of the hundred and 50 psalms. And this, that Psalm 1 begins with this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. When we think of Psalm 1 as the guide for how we read all of the psalms, we, we, we see two things. First, there is a path, right? There is, there is a way that is not following the insolent, that is not following the counsel of the wicked, that is not following sinners, that is not following scoffers, right? There is a path. The second thing is that path is fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 1 is about Jesus, by the way. Psalm 1 is a messianic psalm. The blessed man who does not walk in those ways, but walks in the way of the Lord is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, when we read the Psalms, what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to see Jesus as the fulfillment, really the fulfillment of Psalm 1 and 2. 
Psalm 1 is kind of messianic. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. Jesus fulfills all of that. And then as we read the psalms, we look back and see how Jesus does it. Jesus becomes our example. Jesus is that blessed man who does not walk in these ways and who blazed a trail for us to follow. While we could not do it on our own, he provides a path for us. You don't have to give in to the scoffers of this world. You don't have to give in to the insolent men of this world. You don't have to give in to the arrogant, prideful people of this world. You and I can follow Jesus. Look at verse 53. It says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Not only does the psalmist in this section reveal to us the character of the insolent, but he also shows us their foolishness. And he really shows us our, the way that we should view their foolishness. He says, hot indignation seizes me. It's an interesting turn. The psalmist is saying, I'm really mad. <laughs> okay. Hot indignation. I'm, I'm, I'm really upset, but what is he upset at? It's important. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. So what is he mad about? He's not mad that they're persecuting him. The psalmist is not having a pity party saying, oh, woe is me, I'm facing persecution. Remember, Jesus, our example, right? Fulfills Psalm 1, he is that blessed man. And when we look at the life of Jesus, what we see time and again is Jesus doesn't have a pity party when people oppose him. Jesus rests in the promises of God, recognizing that he has come to fulfill the promises of God. This is who Jesus is, what Jesus did. And so we then emulate that. But the psalmist is not wrong here for saying hot indignation seizes me. So what he's mad about is not the fact that he's being persecuted. What he's mad about is the way of the wicked because they have forsaken God. Now, you probably grew up hearing a phrase that I grew up hearing that I don't use, at least very often I don't use, I'm about to use it in a minute, because I don't think the church has been great at this. But you probably grew up hearing this phrase if you grew up in church, I did. And that is that we're supposed to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Were you told that growing up? You, you, probably, you probably, maybe you still say that. I don't say that a whole lot because I don't think we're great at it. I think we confuse the two so very often. And we use that as kind of a, a, a bully phrase to kind of knock people down. And, and, and so I, I kind of steer clear of it. However, there is validity to having hot indignation about wickedness that surrounds us. Listen to what the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 6. This is this part of Proverbs written by King Solomon. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Do you notice how many of those would well describe someone who is persecuting the psalmist? 
This, these are people that'll lie about you. These are people that'll, uh, that'll seek, that'll devise wicked plans. These are people that if they could would shed your innocent blood. These are people that would sow discord amongst you and your other relationships, right? This is a description, I think, of people who are these arrogant, prideful persecutors. And what should we do? Well, we should have hot indignation for wickedness. We should, as Proverbs 6 says, share in the Lord's, I'm going to use this word, hatred of these things. Now be careful. We're not being told to hate people. <laughs> and we're not being told to, to use scripture in some hateful way against people. What we are being told though is to despise the wickedness around us. And hear me clearly, to despise the wickedness around us, it must begin with despising the wickedness in our own life. If hot indignation only seizes you against the wickedness of other people and you turned a blind eye to your own, you have a great and mighty problem before the Lord. Church, if we only look at the wickedness outside with hot indignation, but aren't willing to expose the sins of brothers and sisters inside, we have a great and mighty problem before the Lord. So we, we must hate evil. We, we must have a hot indignation against the wicked because it goes against that which God has said to be true. And the word reveals to us not only the character of those who are opposed, who are persecuting followers of Jesus, but also the foolishness that they experience and our attitude towards that wickedness that they have embraced. Number three, the word provides for our worship during times of persecution. The psalmist ends with these three verses. Your statutes, again, the word have been my song in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. So what do we do when we face persecution? We, we recognize, we define it according to scripture. We run to the word and to the promises. We stand there knowing that in it we find hope and comfort. And then the psalmist goes a step further and he's like, even in the midst of this great affliction, worship God. <laughs> even in the midst of great opposition and oppression and persecution, worship God. Some of the greatest songs written for the Christian church were written in the midst of persecution. Some of the greatest songs that the church has sung, some of the greatest psalms that we have in the Old Testament and some of the greatest hymns of the Christian faith come out of moments of persecution, out of moments of oppression. There's an entire genre of Christian music that came from American slaves who in the midst of that level of oppression still worshiped God. And so should we, and we should do so in accordance with the word of God because it provides for our worship. Your statutes, your word have been my song in the house of my sojourning. 
the house of the sojourning, this place where we reside right now. Now, this is obviously, this is Old Testament. It's pre-Christian church, but we still get this image of the congregation. That's the, the word that's the assembly, the house of the Old Testament becomes the congregation, the church of the New Testament. And here's what we do. Together, we sing the songs of God. We sing the promises of God. We sing the statutes of God. We're instructed to do this by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 begins with a description of the wicked, kind of like the psalmist does here. A description of the ways of wicked people. And then Paul contrasts the church. It's like, don't live like that, but live like this. And one of the things he tells them to do is to worship. And he says that we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody of the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of evil, we worship together according to his word with thanksgiving. Now, we'll get on to, to you in just a minute. You ready? What we do for the first 20 minutes and the last 10 minutes, generally according to our schedule in here, is just as important as what I'm doing right now. And if you think those moments are optional, for the gathered body of Christ, you need to rethink the way you approach what it means to be the gathered body of Christ. We have instructions from the word of God to sing to one another. We have instructions from the word of God to sing in a way that we doctrinally instruct one another, that we encourage one another, that we show our thanksgiving together. So don't just come in here for the preaching. <laughs> and if you are here during the music, which most of the vast majority of you are, if you're here during the music, don't, sing the music. <laughs> we take great effort to sing doctrinally accurate songs that are based on the promises of scripture so that we can fulfill the instructions of God's word. This is what we do together. And if you don't feel like it, if you've had a bad week and you just don't feel like it, that's the time to do it all the more. In the midst of all of the wickedness in our world, what do we do? We make the statutes, the statutes of God our song in the house of our sojourning. And he says, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your laws. Did you say that he remembers his name in the night? Again, poetic, there's... There's an emphasis here that if we just read it quickly, maybe that we'll miss. When the psalmist says, I'll remember your name in the night, what is the night? The night is darkness. This isn't just him saying, I'm gonna say a quick prayer when I go to bed. This is the psalmist saying, when life is the darkness, is the darkest, when all of wickedness seems to be around me, that which is represented in the night, I will remember your name, O Lord, and continue to keep your law. In Psalm 91, we read, for he will deliver uh, you from snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the what? Terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. 
I hope this morning you came here to worship the faithful Lord who has promised to deliver you from all unrighteousness. I hope that you have come here this morning to corporately worship the one who has promised to deliver you from your enemy. I hope you have come here this morning to worship him, to sing together praises to our God who is our refuge in the darkness of night. So what? Where do I go in the face of persecution? I told you at the beginning, some of you are experiencing oppression, persecution, affliction, hardship at the hands of others right now. Others of you will one day. My question is, where, where do you go? Because there are a lot of solutions, quote unquote, solutions that, that are out there. there. There's a lot of advice people will give that may even sound like good advice. But where do we run to the promises of God? If you're running anywhere else first, you've got it backwards. You see, we don't just go to Scripture. But we better go to Scripture. Because when we go to Scripture, that it informs the other places that we go. When we go to Scripture first, it, it's the lens through which we view the other decisions that we're going to make concerning the persecutor. When we go to Scripture first, it helps us to see what the right path forward is. But all, the, all too often, we want to take a lot of other steps in the face of opposition before we're informed by scripture. Go to scripture, go to the promises of God and train yourself in that. Now, here's where I want to end today. I want to end in what's probably the most familiar, even if you're relatively new to church, you've likely heard this before, the most familiar Psalm. It's the 23rd Psalm. I want to read the whole thing but I want to read it in the context of what we've been talking about. So just imagine yourself, and some of you, this can be really easy. Imagine yourself in a moment of opposition, in a moment of oppression and persecution. Maybe you're in the midst of one of those right now, and so it's easy for you. Maybe you have been. Put yourself back there. But, but imagine that for a minute and, and allow Psalm 23 to influence what you do. Where do you run? Where do you go? Listen to what he, the psalmist says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, church, in the face of affliction, why would we run anywhere other than the promises of the good shepherd who brings us to green pastures, who comforts us in the presence of our enemies and who 
brings us into his house forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us promise and hope and comfort and instruction in the face of affliction. God, would we be diligent to pursue your promises? Would we be diligent to pursue your word even in our darkest moments? even when everyone around us has failed us, even when we are facing direct opposition and persecution, would we run to your promises? Thank you that you are our good shepherd. Thank you that you are our refuge and strength. Thank you that you are our hope and comfort, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, church, we stand together and we worship the one who is our good shepherd.